it is staggering the amount of toil and friction and frustration that engineers are willing to put up with. You know, <laughs> can I borrow this quote? Absolutely, okay. please right, do, because good. I think it's essential. I mean, yeah. it's it's so it's so spot on to kind of why we haven't solved these challenges because nobody's complaining, right? I mean, it's just it's just accepted that this is almost like an occupational hazard. Gitstream is the new free dev tool from Linear B that eliminates a key bottleneck in your team's workflow pull requests, and code reviews. After reviewing the work of over 2,000 dev teams, Linear B's engineers and data scientists found that pickup times for code reviews were lasting four to five days longer than they should be. The good news is that they found these delays could be eliminated in four key steps. First, by adding context to every pull request, such as estimated time to review. Second, automatically assigning the right reviewer and number of reviewers to pull requests. Third, having code review automation that auto-request changes. And finally, by automating PR approvals and merges. To learn more about how Gitstream works and to try it out free for your team, please visit gitstream.cm or search for Gitstream in the GitHub Marketplace. Welcome to the show. Thank Um, you. I'm super excited to have you here. Uh, With us, we have Justin Riach. He is the field CTO and chief evangelist for Gradle. That's right. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I'm I'm excited to to talk with you today. And for for those of you who aren't watching on YouTube, this is obviously Connor Bronson. I'm your uh, Dev Interrupted co-host, and we're here live at DevOps Enterprise Summit for another incredible episode. Uh, We've had a chance to have like really interesting people on the show uh, and Justin, someone we we met here at DevOps Enterprise Summit, and said, "Hey, like, let's get you in here. Let's do a recording. Let's uh, let's have a bit of a conversation." But before we dive into to why we want you on the show, let's hear about like how did you get to be where you are and you know CTO at Gradle. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, my story began when I was a teenager and played with languages like Perl and, and things like that when they were out. <clears throat> so that took me down a path of uh, working for companies and evangelizing the use of open source in the enterprise, right? Mm. Uh, doing it in a way that was you know, safe and, and secure and, and responsible, but then also being able to reap all the productivity benefits that come from being able to get your hands on high quality software you know, quickly and, and let that augment your work. So, so that really got me thinking a lot about productivity, right? Productivity yeah. in general, right? I mean, open source, it's like, yeah, the license is free, whatever. But, you know, the, the old sort of free is in free speech versus free beer, you know, still kind of holds yeah. up, right? You know, it's, it's boring to me that there's not a license cost associated. What, what's really interesting is the freedom and flexibility that you have to use this software kind of in any way that you want. And so I, I worked at a company called OpenLogic for a while. I became their field CTO. My job was to, you know, the commercial team as well as our customers and advocates about the importance of things like open source governance policies and its effect on productivity which took me to Gradle about a year and a half ago. Gradle's been working on a new practice called developer productivity engineering, which we're kind of seeing as like the next shift in consciousness for the industry, thinking more about developer experience and how we can improve that. So when I saw what they were doing, I was like, this is, this is what I want to work on. It's getting yeah. to the point where you go to like an open source show and you're like, hey, you should have an open source policy because open source is great. And people are like, yeah, we know, yeah, like, thanks. It's been a couple we, years now. Doing yeah. That. yeah, so you were, you were yeah. right. So it was, it was interesting to, to see like, you know, this new practice and something I felt like I could really be passionate about and kind of get behind. Uh, and it's been great. I think we hit the, the market at like just the right time when, when people are starting to think about this stuff. So. It's great when you have that feeling, isn't yeah. it? And, and to your point, like you've seen this open source revolution happening uh, and now you're at, I think you'd call it maybe the next stage of like, okay, like developer productivity engineering. Let's start with defining that for our audience. What does that mean to you? So developer productivity engineering uh, is a practice that involves 
acceleration technologies, analytics, and observation to really engineer a better experience for our developers. So, so the idea, though, is that we use technology to remove barriers to throughput for developers. Yeah. Right? So it, it follows in the footsteps of practices like DevOps and mm-hmm. Agile. And, but you can take it all the way back to what I like to refer to as like the ancient business wisdom of the 70s and yeah. 80s. So like business process reengineering and change management. I mean, value stream management is one example. Of value stream and that didn't come from software. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so we're here at the IT Revolution show, obviously. Yeah. They have the Phoenix Project, which is... Uh, a great homage to uh, the goal, which is one of my favorite books, you know, yeah. Eli Goldratt and, and where the theory of constraints really came from. And, you know, what does that teach us? Why are these, why are these practices successful? Because they simultaneously decrease costs while at the same time increasing throughput. And the theory of constraints tells us you can't really just do one of those and, and expect a real transformation in your business. So anyway, the idea is that, you know, developers spend way too much time waiting on feedback cycles to complete, waiting on test sets to run, you know, or dealing with inconsistency in the builds or, or, or unreliable build flaky tests and failures that could have been avoided. So we try to remove all of these kind of barriers to throughput and keep them in a state of creative flow as much as yes. possible, right? As much as possible, because there's yeah. so much context switching built in, Oh God, it's yeah. a PR process or something else, like jumping into team meetings. It's really easy to lose that. And yeah. something that we've even noticed is a lot of times, like even once you get your code done, you need to have someone to review it. Maybe it's going to be a couple of days for the review. And maybe you've already worked on something else. And you're like, oh, shoot, like what did I build here? Right. How can we reduce that kind of friction point? And there's a lot of these friction points to go after. So like developer productivity engineering, love that idea. It's, it's very clear to me, not just, you know, on the show, but here at DevOps Enterprise Summit and, and elsewhere, like there's a, there's a growing recognition this is an issue. Oh, it's, it's happening all across the board. I mean, when, when we say that developer productivity engineering is the next big thing, in software, like we actually mean that quite literally, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, if you look at the bottlenecks that have been solved in a lot of ways by, by DevOps, right. If yeah. you look at, you know, being able to release in an automated fashion, being able to easily perform canary releases and things like that, that's all important. It's great. And it has removed barriers to throughput. It does let us, you know, to use the theory of constraints terminology, convert our code inventory into throughput at a lower cost, but it hasn't solved everything. And uh, especially not in the area of developer experience. Like it, it blows my mind that you still have, you know, developers that are waiting. I mean, in the most extreme case that we've seen, 20 hour feedback cycles. Mm-hmm. So it's like you just cram in everything that you can. And then because you're going to wait a day, you know, to yeah. be able to get this kind of feedback. And, and that has a whole bunch of cascading problems because now I'm introducing a really large change set. So if something breaks, I've got a big, a, a much bigger scope of things that I have to look for to try to investigate and fix the problem. So, so, you know, uh, we were talking before the show about, you know, Netflix is a company that really does yeah, this right. I love this. You know, they've, they've got a, a great focused developer productivity team. And I got to shout out Catherine Kohler. She's yeah. the director of developer productivity, came on the show a couple months back. Amazing episode. If you want a like little corollary after this, check that one out. Great follow up for this. Yeah, no, good, good, good plug. And, and they really, they think a lot about productivity in that. We were working with a guy, Danny Thomas, who's one of their productivity Danny, engineers. Yeah. yeah. And he said something in an interview that was, it, it's burned into my brain. I, I okay. use it in, in a lot of keynotes now when I'm talking. He said, it is staggering the amount of toil and friction and frustration that engineers are willing to put up with. You know, <laughs> Can I borrow this quote? Absolutely, okay. please right, do, because good. I think it's essential. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, so, it's so spot on to kind of why we haven't solved these challenges, because nobody's complaining. Right. I mean, it's just it's just accepted that this is almost like an occupational hazard of being. It's a almost a sense of pride about it. Right. Of like, Sometimes. oh, like I dealt with this thing like you need to, too. This is a part of the getting there in the industry. I, I talked to someone yesterday about how we 
we have this idea where it's like, oh, we can't have you go through like an apprenticeship style process. You have to like, you know, work your way up and like push through things. You, you can't just like learn the right practice at the start. You got to fight for it. <laughs> it's like, really? You yeah. know, because I mean, because uh, because what is software development, right? It's about creative flow. Yeah. It's not destructive flow, right? It's creative flow. Software developers are creators. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and it's so the brain has been mapped while developers are writing code. And it's this amazing soup of right brain and left brain activity that's happening all at once. Like on the one hand, you're creatively problem solving. You're, you're visualizing the problem in your head. Right. You're thinking creatively about the code. Then the, the other side of it is you make this hypothesis with a build tool chain. You're doing something very scientific. You're saying, okay, if I write this code. Here's how I solve the problem. Here's how I solve I the problem. Yeah. And does the compiler, yeah. you know, you enter into a dialogue with the tool chain. Did what I did, did this solve the problem? Right? I love that description of a dialogue with the tool chain because it's it's so true. Like not only are we having a dialogue with our team members and the, our collaborators, but there is this, because of how we've evolved our tool sets, you have to like also think about like, how is this impacting the compiler to your point and, and all these other pieces of like, what's the checks? Is this meeting the standards we need? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, so what happens if you're in a conversation with somebody and it takes them 45 minutes to respond, right? That's, that's a, that's a boring and, and frustrating conversation. It's certainly not going to keep you in a state of, of creative flow, which is where if, if we really had to, you know, pick an outcome from developer productivity engineering, you know, beyond a vanity metric, things like that, we really want to know how much time are developers just allowed to spend coding, you know, and you talk yeah. about this context switching too. There's been a lot of interesting research over the last decade. I mean, you probably heard some of the research that says we we, we can't really multitask as humans. No. Like we convince it takes like 15 minutes to kind of get yeah. back into it. About yeah. a 15 minute tax that you pay on that, that context switch. But over the last couple of years, we've determined that not only can we not do this, it's actually unhealthy. It is bad for our executive functioning to try to force ourselves to multitask. Yeah. So there's like numerous reasons to try to reduce the context switch. I mean, obviously the objective and, and you know, economic reasons for being able to you know, keep developers more focused and productive, but it literally impacts health. And developers are more productive when they're happy. You know, I mean, that's just... I think everyone is. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I, I think it. I wouldn't know because I only know software, but I'm sure it, <laughs> I'm sure it extends well beyond uh, yeah, yeah. Just, just this craft. But no, I mean, I, you know, that's, that's really our philosophy is that, you know, if you remove the, the toil and the frustration, then developers are naturally going to be more productive. But, but we haven't done it in some like authoritarian way. We're mm -hmm. like, oh, you're going to lose your job. You know, instead it's like, no, let's... Let's let's make your job more enjoyable. Let's let you spend more time doing what you love to do. And it's not just productivity either. There's like yeah. we mentioned second order impacts, but for engineering leaders listening, if you can improve the experience of your developers, you retain more of them. Oh yeah. Like recruitment is a huge challenge for yes. for engineering leaders. So is retention. Like if someone doesn't have fun in their job, they can go work somewhere else and they probably have high demand skills. They can go do that. So if we can improve developer experience, not only is it going to improve productivity, but it's also going to improve retention, probably going to improve recruitment if you can like actually put out in the world there, there's a lot of stuff that does to provide value to not only the engineer but the team it's true uh we you know another one of our big customers is linkedin oh yeah uh, and they have a, a dedicated productivity team as well and they're very open about using this as a recruiting measure to say hey totally we invest in developer experience like we have dedicated people who just make sure that your experience is good your platform onboarding is good your day-to-day -day work is is enjoyable and not full of frustration you know, and, and it's, that's, that's a hundred percent the right attitude because we, we are living in a world that, you know, IDC predicted this back in October of 2020 and it's come true has accelerated a little bit because of COVID, but that the global GDP is roughly 65% digitally transformed at this point. Yes. And that is 
that's and that's only increasing too. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, I mean, more more code begets more code. Yeah, but I, I think the last time I saw a statistic, and probably Gardner or somebody like that, you know, the estimate is that we're about three million developers short right now. So the war for talent is only going to get more and more combative. And and uh, to be able to say like to to paint a really good story about your investments in DevX and in developer productivity, it's it's very compelling. I mean, you've got you know, let's face it, you've got really like well-known developers who are they're sitting on a ton of equity they're driving lambos you know they're not in this yeah. for the money right they're in this because you know they want to work in an environment that makes an impact and and where that where they're enjoying what they're doing right there's just no way that you can say that spending two days diagnosing a flaky test is like enjoyable i mean no offense if you're super into that <laughs> i'm sure someone out there maybe I, yeah, yeah i don't mean yeah. to alienate you but for the for, for mere mortals that's that's yeah. not the way that we want to <laughs> <laughs> spend our time totally so yeah i'm curious if there is going to be a second order impact of hey we improve the developer experience that probably also means it's more accessible to people who are coming into the industry and maybe that actually enables us to close that gap not only for the individual company but if we say the industry is less toilsome uh, maybe that's going to allow for more recruitment and training of uh, junior developed devs who will stick around longer there's i think there's a lot of truth to that i mean especially like I, i'm a big fan of the whole malcolm gladwell ten thousand hours yeah for expertise type of thing, but is it 10,000 hours waiting on a build to complete or is it 10,000 hours writing code? Yeah. You know, and so obviously if you're able to spend more time on, on, on that part of your learning and, and your experience, that, that only makes sense that, that it would, you'd be able to onboard faster. Uh, you, you won't run screaming from, from, from the industry because you're <laughs> like, Oh, this is not what I signed up for. This yeah. sucks. So no, I think that, there, I mean, there's, there's all these impacts and the time is right for it now. I mean, uh, Gartner released a CEO report a couple of months ago, the 2022 CEO report. And it was like, I don't remember the exact statistic, but it's like, it's like a 40% increase in terms of CEOs that are now, that they actually have developer experience on their radar. Good. Which is, it's very good, but also like very acute, right? I mean, just a couple of years ago, it was way low on the list of of CEO concerns. And now it's one of the top concerns. So, so again, going back to the next big thing, you know, DevOps is across the chasm. It's commoditized. It's there's a, a thousand different ways to deploy Kubernetes. There's a thousand yeah. different ways to put in CI/CD. But being able to now focus on new bottlenecks that that have always been here, ironically, but we just haven't really considered them. We're a young it's industry still, yeah, and we're evolving true. very quickly. But I mean, it's also challenging for organizations to keep up with the pace of change for technology. I yeah. mean, we really can't in a lot of ways. So. It's crucial we have these conversations and say, okay, like, what do we need to do to not just have technological solutions, but organizational solutions? Because mm-hmm. you need to pair both together. If you just do one or the other, you're not going to succeed in the long run. And that's one of the things that actually differentiates DPE from DevOps a little bit is that there's the human factor, right? I mean, yeah. uh, like the, the, the platonic ideal of a DevOps team is supposed to be not a team at all, right? Yeah. 100% automation, no humans in the loop, right? But with developer productivity, you have to have humans cascading this practice, caring about, you know, the metrics that they see on the dashboard and then correlating that to developer experience without that empathy, then you don't get the focus. You don't get anything actionable that really changes the culture of, of the business. So, so that is a differentiator is that you need, yeah, you need those people to be, to be thinking about these problems, but then, you know, that, that ends up and ideally these people have written code, right? I mean, it's a very special, you, you come across these developers who like truly care more about the performance of their team and and what the whole team is is going through in terms of their developer experience versus their own experience writing code. And they're everywhere. They're in every organization. I mean, that's the thing is like a lot of folks have already been doing DPE. They just haven't been calling it that. 
yeah. you know, or maybe it's a part-time couple hours a week that some development lead spends on productivity. But what we have to see now is a, a shift in focus to making this a, a center of excellence. The, the, the companies that are really doing this right, you know, the Facebooks, the LinkedIn's, the Netflixes, the, you know, they have dedicated teams of hundreds right. of productivity engineers, that's thousands of, of developers. And, and that's the only way I think to, to kind of keep enough of a focus in the industry to, to allow this to be a transformative change as opposed to just a minor tweak. How are you thinking about like the metrics and visibility aspect of DPE? Probably the most important metric is one that no one keeps track of. And I know this because I give our keynote and everything like this to all kinds of different audiences. And I always ask a question that's provocative, but it shouldn't be. Okay. You know, and that question We love that is, kind of question. Yeah. It's, a good. <laughs> it's a good question. And it's, are you tracking local build times? Mm. Are you tracking the amount of time that developers are literally sitting on their laptop waiting for something to build? And the answer is like a resounding silence. Always people are like, oh no, I didn't think we, I didn't think to do that. You know, but it's actually the most important metric for mm. quantifying developer experience. What is developer experience? But a sequence of feedback cycles, again, that dialogue with the tool chain, and how can you possibly hope to improve that if you're not measuring it? So that's one of the most important metrics is, you know, how long are the build times actually taking? Right. Now, the acceleration component of DPE, you know, we recommend, we, we have three distinct technologies that we recommend, but it's not the only way to approach this. We have a caching solution that's, that caches individual phases of a build so that they don't have to be repeated in subsequent builds if things haven't changed. We have a way to distribute unit tests to let them run in parallel and elastically auto-scaling environments, but we, we tie that directly to the build tool, so it's not part of CI. It's, it's happening locally for the developer, build, build local. That's build local. what we mean by yeah. that. Uh, and then we have predictive test selection, which is which is newest addition to our suite. Uh, it was actually uh, developed by Google and Facebook. Facebook published a paper about it in 2019. It uses a machine learning model to take a look at a history of changes that have been made to the code base and try to predict which tests are actually going to provide interesting feedback as opposed to just right. succeeding and it's kind of a waste of time if you think about that so so we need to look to it the avoidance savings as well right once you have this as acceleration techniques in place and you know how long local builds are taking we need to figure out how much time are we saving using the acceleration technologies and is this consistent you know do we see a performance regression or the builds two minutes on tuesday and all of a sudden they're five minutes on friday and in, in, in real mm. life, what happens is nothing. It, it, the developers are like, oh, that sucks. The build's taking longer. Oh, well, can't do anything about that. You know? yeah. and then, or if it does go reported, then then it doesn't get prioritized. You know, Because again, it's, it's really hard to diagnose if you're not keeping track of the metrics. Like if you wake up one day and your builds are taking 10 minutes and you're like, oh, I remember a couple of months ago, this was a lot faster, but you have no way to pinpoint you know, where if this you're not tracking it. Yeah. And, and so many things can impact it. Endpoint security upgrades, antivirus, you know, new versions of an annotation processor, you know, up dependencies. I mean, more yeah. lines of code, you know, all these things can impact build performance. But if we're not looking at those trends, then we can't pinpoint, you know, which ones were, were, were added that might have been deleterious to, to the developer experience. And then also there's the analytics side of failures and flaky tests. So right. flaky tests, I've heard them called the infinite pit of sorrow. <laughs> like a great name. Spotify them, calls yeah. them that. They have a great blog about flaky tests where they talk about how they have the traceability in their app to be able to link almost all jankiness that they have in their app back to a flaky test somewhere. Hmm. Because, you know, what's the psychology? It's like, oh, the test failed. Run it again. Oh, it failed again. Huh. Run it again. That's strange. Oh, yeah. it succeeded. Great. Done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, you totally just introduced a bug. You know, so um, 
So we, we, we measure that as well. And we, we recommend a couple of different ways to detect flaky tests. And then you make that data actionable. You put it on a dashboard, you sort the dashboard by percentage flakiness. How, how often has this particular test been flaky? And then our own engineers, our Gradle build tool engineers, as well as our Gradle enterprise engineers, just schedule flaky test days where they just sort by flakiness. They start at the top and they mm. just eliminate, eliminate, eliminate. So this is like, you know, everything's infinitely more than zero type of idea where we're completely proactively avoiding frustration for developers by, by fixing these things using data. And then failure analytics are really important too. When builds fail uh, across an organization, you want to aggregate that data so that you understand, hey, 200 developers were impacted by this failure over the last week uh, versus the more anecdotal side that's usually the approach now where it's just one angry developer is like, oh, I've got the worst problem in the world. You need to fix it right now. And you had a dashboard, you could say, oh, actually, you're the only one impacted by this. No other developers have Right. It, or you could say, oh, there's 10 others. They just haven't talked to us yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So so those are the, the key metrics for us. Uh, but I would say, you know, if you kind of come away from this interview with, with, you know, one actionable thing that you can put in place today, find a way to track and visualize local build times. Some people do this in CI, and that's okay. You know, I mean, that's better than nothing. But a lot of developers are still doing a lot of incremental work right at their laptop. And that experience is just usually not traced or, or visualized at all. And that's the one that matters the most. Yeah. And most organizations, when they go through this transition, when they start tracking local build times, they go from thinking that everything was great because nobody was complaining to, oh my God, this is awful. Well, <laughs> if we don't track it, that's not a problem. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? Come on, like, I don't want to <laughs> see that. somebody else's problem, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, so that having that visibility, I think, is the most important thing. But it all comes down to what frustrations are developers experiencing and, and how, how, how much idle time do they have in right. between their feedback cycles. Yeah, we've talked a lot about idle time as far as that being something where if we can align folks, like developers want to solve problems. They want to spend their time solving problems and idle time is a huge killer of that. Yeah. It's a killer of flow state, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, and you can attack it a lot of different ways. So I, I appreciate this perspective on it. It's, it's nice to have. I'm curious, and just broader developer experience, sure. anything else that you're seeing trend-wise or within, within the industry as we have these conversations where you're like, oh, here's something else that should be talked about or addressed or that you're hearing someone else talk about? Yeah, and, and especially with respect to productivity, because by no means did the solutions that I just lay out encompass all of what we can oh, do in like terms we said, of productivity. It's been an evolving thing for the industry. Like, oh, realistically, yeah. this industry is so nascent still compared mm. to, I don't know, like car manufacturing oh, yeah. or... I don't know, creating clothes or something like that. Like there's, there's so much here and we're just getting started. And it all exists in this weird virtual space yes. too, right? Yeah, On yeah. top of that. Increasingly so. so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So other trends, I'm really happy to see the focus on open source supply chain security. That supply chain security focus though, it's, it's really important, but I think most people think of it from the eye of, oh, we don't want to get hacked, which is very true, yeah, but valid. think about it in terms of productivity. There is no bigger mm -hmm. impediment to productivity than a publicly disclosed vulnerability because what happens Ooh. at that point everything Fire stops yep. all hands on deck right i mean when log for shell happens it's not a good developer experience either no it's not <laughs> nobody wants to worry about that yeah so there's no bigger productivity killer in my mind than finding out that your code is vulnerable mm -hmm. because then that becomes prioritized over over everything else and to your point it's not fun to go through and trace through dependency graphs again if you Someone like this probably thing, likes it you, yeah. i don't I, I keep alienating i'm like uh, you're, i'd say 80 percent of people would would agree that it is not fun to trace through okay. dependency people graphs. who get angry about episodes are actually great so like feel free because they comment a lot so yeah come on bring, bring <laughs> that's them, good bring any press go. is yeah. good press right <laughs> yeah so uh it's it's a huge productivity killer the ability to you know, bake that into the supply chain and, and seeing things like the sig store project and the persia mm. project that are coming out now 
kind of these like next generation approaches to to reproducible builds and making sure that code is Amazing. genuine. It's great. It's really, really good to see. And one of the more creative uses of blockchain too in, in SigStore, I, I, I think. Yeah, I'm curious um, to see what happens to that. I think there's a lot of potential evolving that can happen within oh, yeah. utilizing blockchain to kind of apply to security and supply chains. I mean, that's obviously one of the key use cases. What can we do there? So. Yeah. Yeah, that's blockchain is this, you know, I mean, obviously it gets like thrown around and, and, and used. It's a buzzword for a lot of people, but, but there are real impacts of using distributed ledger, ledger technology. Yeah. yeah, we solved a real hard to solve problem. I mean, being able to create scarcity in a digital space, that was like high in the sky. I mean, like yeah. if I, you know, take this water bottle and I hand it to you, a very clear exchange has yeah. Yeah, happened. I am no longer in possession of the water bottle. Now you have it because there's only one like this in the whole galaxy. And you know, impact differently, yeah. It, right? But but in, in, in the digital world, reproduction is that. easy. Yeah. Copy a million times and who knows if it's genuine, right? So yeah, so being able to actually create scarcity is, it's, it's, it's amazing. We're going to enter into this world, I think, where we're, I mean, we're coming into it now. Everybody's just going to kind of have a blockchain and there's never, you know, different, different use cases for it, you know, as we kind of like get digested into this metaverse thing. Oh, that, man. That All right, I gotta say, I'm, I'm more of a believer in AR than. Oh, totally. A hundred percent. VRs for games. I mean, it's yes. like. Games but, and like maybe work. Like if yeah. you have a distributed team, maybe it's great to have like a VR meeting space we can meet in this dome i don't know that could be cool i've tried a couple of those like spatial is one that that's out on i haven't tried that ever it's interesting it's kind of interesting like there's a little bit of magic sometimes where so one of the things that that happens is they can translate you know like 2d objects into 3d objects in the environment so one upshot of that is like if you're not in a vr headset and you're on spatial you also have like a web browser client that you can use instead and if you like drag a pdf document into the little web space it pops up oh, in VR. Okay. And then it's like, yeah. so it's like, then you have this document, you're like, like looking through it. That's yeah. a little bit of magic right there. That's, yeah. that's very cool. But no, in terms of real practical, I mean, it's going to be, I, I agree with you hundred percent AR. I kind of wish Google glasses had worked. It'd be kind of fun. I know. Right. And well, the, this new one just got released. I, so I've got the, the in-between stuff. I've got the, the stories, the Ray-Ban stories. Oh. And I will say those are very cool. Like okay. it's, you know, I got it. I have two grandkids, which actually surprises I folks. I would have uh, been very surprised. My, my yeah. wife's a little bit older yeah. than I am. And we've got, th- we're, we're a blended family. And uh, we've got three kids between the two of us. And so th- now we've got two grandkids. I was like, you know what? We miss so much just reaching for the phone to try to take the picture. You know, it's like, and then the moment has passed, right? So yeah. I'm going to say the stories are actually pretty cool, but they're not the real, just like, a V1. Immersive. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a V1, but. So we're getting there. But, you know, I, I think this merger of digital twins and AR is going to be really important. Yeah. You, you may have seen the whole thing that NVIDIA did with Toyota. I actually haven't. Oh, wow. So they built a full like virtual digital twin of a Toyota factory. Yeah. Yeah, NVIDIA did this and then you put, the, you put your glasses on, you walk around in an empty room. But you're actually interacting with digital replicas of everything that's in the wow. that's, and, and it's all modeled so you can go like tweaks i don't know anything about car manufacturing All right, well i know what i'm doing after this i'm checking this out yeah it's so, super cool yeah. going like tweak a setting and be like okay what impact does this actually have on production before you do it for real amazing right you know well, well justin thank you so much for this oh, yeah, far-ranging yeah, conversation yeah, this, this has been blast. really interesting uh yeah. we'll have to have you back at some point but thanks for joining us on deaf interrupted it's a, a ton of fun doing this in the dome and kind of yeah know you a great bit, setup so. yeah a lot of fun that no, was my pleasure thanks for having me on and uh definitely look forward to a, a future conversation